0: Let me ask you now to open up your Bibles to uh, the book of Romans and chapter 9. Uh, the book of Romans and chapter 9. Uh, as we turn there, uh, let me mention that our brother Mike Edwards is preaching uh, this morning at West Edgecombe Baptist Church. He's filling in there this morning. So even as we're here uh, studying Romans chapter 9, let's pray for him uh, as he uh, speaks to that congregation from, uh, from the book of Proverbs. And um, here we're thinking about God's sovereignty. He's going to be preaching, I believe, about uh, how it is a man who plans his ways, but it is God who directs his steps, uh, Proverbs 16. Um, so uh, let's pray for him as well. well. We are continuing to work our way through Romans 9, and as we're doing so, God is confronting us with this awesome truth about his sovereignty in our salvation. And Romans 9 is dense theology. Romans 9 is doctrinal. It's it's logical argument. It's conclusions drawn from Old Testament passages. There is nothing in Romans 9 about how to be a better spouse or how to be a better parent. There's nothing in Romans 9 about how to manage your finances or how to control your tongue. And because of this, Romans 9 is a chapter that preachers often avoid. Unless you're preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, you you can avoid chapters like this, and, and many preachers do. And part of that is because there is this sense that what people really want to hear these days is application, application, application. People like sermons with titles like six steps to a better you or five golden keys to unlock a happier marriage. And we just don't find anything like that in Romans chapter 9. And yet I would submit to you that we need chapters like Romans 9. Preachers need to preach chapters like this. Christians need to hear and reckon with chapters like this. As you see at the end of the day it is doctrine that affects our doing it is theology that affects our thinking it is who we understand god to be it is how we view god and ourselves in relation to him that ultimately makes the biggest difference in our personal lives in our families in our workplaces in our day-to-day living Typically, we don't remember the six steps to a better you six hours after we've heard them. But when we've come face to face with a humbling, glorious, mind-stretching truth about God and salvation, this has an effect on us that lasts long after we've forgotten the details of the sermon. I cannot trace out for you how studying Romans 9 is going to make you a better spouse or parent or child or grandparent or friend or co-worker or servant of others. But I can tell you this, if these truths in this chapter get a hold of your heart and a hold of your soul, they will produce fruit in the practical everyday moments of your life. Those six-steps type sermons are typically just giving you a picture of what the fruit of Christian living should look like. But you'll never become a fruit-bearing Christian just by hearing what the fruit looks like and trying to imitate those steps. To have fruit, you have to have roots. And it is Christians who put their roots deep into glorious truth. Truth like that found in this chapter. It is those Christians who ultimately produce the ripest and the best fruit. And so all that to say, give your mind and your heart to considering these truths in this chapter and trust that God will help you with the application. And He will bring forth the fruit. Now I said that we are looking at this awesome truth of God's sovereignty in our salvation. And I need to be clear, that is the issue in this passage. You see, some people look at verse 13, which is where we left off last time, and they point out that Jacob and Esau were not just people, but nations. So verse 13, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. And they point out the nation of Israel is sometimes called Jacob because Jacob was Israel. He was the father of Israel. And the nation of Edom was sometimes called Esau because Esau was the father of the Edomites. And so some people argue that this chapter is not about God's sovereignty and your salvation or my salvation, that this chapter is about God choosing nations to use for his purposes, choosing to use some nations not to use other nations for his purposes i remember the first time somebody confronted me with the doctrine of election and tried to convince me that it was true i was in high school and i just knew that what my friend was saying could not be true my immediate reaction was to kick back against it i could not believe in a god who would sovereignly determine who was saved. And so I went back to my house. I opened up my NIV Quest study Bible that I was using in high school, and I turned to Romans 9, and I read Romans 9 for myself. And I was scared by what I read in that chapter. And I was scared because the God of Romans 9 didn't sound like the God I thought I knew. The God of Romans 9 sounded like a God who was saying that He chooses Who goes to heaven and who doesn't? And frankly, as a teenager, I didn't think I could love a God like that. I had grown up with a very man-centered view of God, or really a me-centered view of God. And this chapter seemed to be presenting a picture of a God that was bigger and grander than I could handle. And then I looked in the notes of my Quest Study Bible and I found that some people believe that Romans 9 is not about individuals but about nations. And I felt better. Because by holding that view, I could escape the idea that God is sovereign over who is saved and who isn't. I I could hold on to the idea that ultimately people and their free will determine whether or not they go to heaven, that it's our choice that makes the difference. Because you see, Romans 9 isn't about individuals. It's about nations. At least that's what some believed, and and that's the view I ran to to escape the God that I was reading about in Romans 9. Leon Morris is normally a fantastic commentator. But on this chapter, he falls exactly for this error. He says... It is election to privilege that is in mind, not eternal salvation. Moreover, it seems clear that Paul intends a reference to nations rather than individuals. So in this view, Romans 9 is about God choosing to use nations for his purposes and not other nations. And that it's not about salvation and it's not about individuals. The problem with Morris's view and the problem with that view which I held for a little while when I was a teenager is that it just doesn't hold up. Because Paul said at the very beginning of this chapter that he was sorrowful. And why was he sorrowful? Because some nations weren't being used by God? No. He said, I'm sorrowful because some of my own kin, my fellow Jews, are cursed and cut off from Christ. In other words, the context of the chapter is a context of salvation. It's a chapter about why so many Jews were rejecting Christ and not being saved. And Paul's answer is that God chooses who are truly His. He chooses the true Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. If Morris's interpretation was right, and this chapter is only about God choosing to use certain nations, Paul's argument suddenly makes no sense. To say that God chooses to use some nations rather than others, that that He chose to use Israel for His purposes and not Edom, doesn't help explain at all why some Jews are not believing on Christ. And so again, this chapter is about the sovereignty of God and the salvation of people. And the key truth that Paul has taught us so far is that ultimately it is God who chooses who are his and whom he will bless with his precious promises. He chose Isaac and not Ishmael. He chose Jacob and not Esau. And this leads to an objection. And this is the most common objection of all to the teaching of divine election. We usually say it this way. That isn't fair. For God to choose to save some sinners, but not to choose to save all sinners, that isn't fair. But let's look at how the objection comes in verse 14. And then see how Paul responds in verses 15-15. And sixteen. So we see the objection in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And now we have Paul's answer. By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So you see the objection that Paul is anticipating in verse 14. He's just taught this purpose of election, this doctrine of election, and he expects the objection, is there injustice on God's part? Is God being unjust? Is he breaking his own principles of righteousness and goodness by choosing some people to be saved and leaving others lost in their sin? Now, notice how that's slightly different than the way we typically put the objection. We normally say, God is being unfair. While Paul is dealing with the objection, God is being unjust. And there is a difference. And the difference is this. When we speak of unfairness, we usually think about people being treated equally. So if we let Johnny... Play with the toy for 10 minutes, but let Billy only play with the toy for five minutes, we say we've been unfair. We've not treated both kids equally. If we pay Mr. Smith $20 per hour for a job, but only pay Mrs. Wheeler $15 per hour for the exact same job, we say we're being unfair. Let me ask you a question. Is there any moral obligation upon God to treat all people in precisely the same way? If God chooses to be merciful to one person, does that make him morally obligated to be merciful to everyone else as well? So here we all are, and we're guilty, we're in our sins, we're deserving of an eternity in hell Justice demands that all of us suffer the wrath of God and God chooses to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to bear His wrath in the place of some. And He chooses to bring that group of people to Jesus. They will believe on Him. He applies the blood of Jesus to them. Their sins are forgiven. They are saved. And others are left to face the wrath of God themselves isn't that unfair well imagine that you go into a restaurant let's say there's 40 people in the restaurant and you don't know any of them but you have a desire in your heart to perform an act of kindness and so you step into that restaurant and you you call the manager over and you say to the manager you see those two tables over there I want to pay their bills. Let me pay their bills. So all of the diners in that restaurant have bills to pay. But you choose, for your own purposes, to pay the bill for some in that restaurant. Are you now morally obligated to pay everyone's bill in that restaurant? And I think the answer is, of course not. In fact, the moment we start talking that way, grace is no longer grace. The moment we start saying that being gracious to one requires you to be gracious to all, grace gets turned upside down and grace becomes duty. Grace becomes obligation. Friends, there is no requirement upon God that He treat people equally, paying the debt for every one now another form of the god is being unfair objection is to say that god is showing partiality justin if, if god chooses ultimately who is saved god is being a respecter of persons Yet we know throughout the Bible that God does not show partiality. Paul even said so in this very letter. Back in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, Paul said, "For God shows no partiality." That's clear. Romans 2:11, God shows no partiality. So how do we reconcile that God does not show partiality with God choosing to save some and not others? And the answer comes when we understand what it means to be impartial. For example, listen to this verse from Deuteronomy 16, verse 19. God speaking. He says, You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the wise of the righteous this is why courtrooms all across our land have the statue of lady justice with a blindfold around her eyes right you ever seen this statue lady justice stands there she's holding the balance of justice in her hands and she's blindfolded and why is she blindfolded because judges are to be impartial meaning They're only to consider the relevant facts of the case and nothing outside of those facts. It doesn't matter if someone is rich or poor, if one person is black and another is white, if one person is educated and another person is uneducated. None of that matters. What matters is the facts of the case, and the judge is to be impartial. Well, I read one writer who looked at all of the occasions in Scripture that speak about being impartial. And here was his conclusion. He said, Most importantly, in each of these instances, being impartial means neither we nor God give special treatment to a person because of his position, merit, wealth, influence, social standing, authority, or popularity. Thus, being a respecter of persons means that we are not to favor one person over the other because of any superior personal trait in the one favored. And likewise, we are not to show prejudice towards those who lack those characteristics. So here is the crucial thing. When God chooses to save someone, it is never because of something in the person who was chosen remember this from last week god did not choose jacob over esau because jacob had some quality about him that god preferred in fact when you read the account in genesis jacob starts out as a pretty, pretty bad guy but god chose jacob over esau before either was born before either had done anything good or bad in order to accomplish his divine purposes God does not show partiality in saving some and not others because there is nothing in the chosen one that wins God's favor. Any person that is chosen by God is chosen sheerly because of purposes within the heart and mind of God himself. If you're here and you're a Christian, you were not chosen because you are somehow more deserving or more attractive to God than others. In fact, here's the truth. Think about this. Stay with me. If salvation was ultimately up to us and our free will and our choice, if it was my decision to follow Jesus that was the ultimate determiner of whether or not I am saved or not, then God would be partial. He would be playing favorites to save us that way. Because if it's up to us to believe, then God is only going to be saving those who are smart enough to believe or wise enough to believe or strong enough to believe on their own he will be only saving the wisest or the smartest or the strongest he's playing favorites but our god does not do that he looks at a world of people who are completely dead in sin and he chooses to save some because of his own divine reasons and he chooses not to save others because of his divine reasons Now notice again how Paul words his objection that he expects. Is there injustice on God's part? Is God sinning? Is God being immoral, unrighteous by choosing to save some and not others? And you see his strong answer. By no means. The King James Version says, God forbid. New American version says, may it never be. Paul is passionate in saying that there is absolutely no injustice on God's part in choosing some to be saved and not others. Okay, Paul, where's your evidence? Because sometimes it sure feels like God is being unjust in saving some and not others. Where is your evidence, Paul, that God is being righteous and just in doing this? And Paul's evidence is given in verse 15. Do you see that it starts with the connecting word for? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For, and his evidence, just like we've been seeing, is a verse of Scripture. Scripture. He just keeps quoting verse after verse after verse from the Old Testament to make his points. This time, his evidence is Exodus thirty-three nineteen, 19, where God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Mount Hermon, how does that prove Paul's point? Because at first blush, it looks like Paul was just restating what he's already said. He's already said that God chooses to be merciful to some. And now he quotes a verse in which God says that he chooses to be merciful to some. But that's not the objection. The objection is, isn't this unjust? Simply quoting a verse that restates what you've already said doesn't help. Except that just like the other verses that paul was quoted in romans 9 it is clear he expects us to know this verse and where it came from and this verse happens to come from one of the most striking and important passages in the entire old testament and when you know the context of this verse as he expects his readers will it makes perfect sense all right are you with me you ready Here is the context of the verse Paul quotes. Moses is speaking with God. And God has just told Moses it's time to leave Mount Sinai. It's time to head towards the promised land. And Moses responds to God's command by pleading with God to go with them. Moses says to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people in the face of the earth? So he says, Lord, I hear your command. We're to go to the promised land. We're to leave Mount Sinai. But you are going to go with us, right? Because your presence is the most important thing. And how does the Lord respond to moses request he responds this way the lord said to moses this very thing that you have spoken i will do for you have found favor in my sight and i know you by name and so the lord answers moses request he says yes moses i am going to go with you my special presence is going to go with you from mount sinai with the nation of israel i will be with you and moses is feeling good this is wonderful news. He just received an answer from God, yes. And now he dares to make an even bigger request. God, God just said yes to me once. Maybe God will say yes to me on what I really want to ask him. And so Moses has something that his, he's been longing for, that he wants from God more than anything else. And so now, after God just said yes to that first question, he's going to dare to ask it. Exodus 33, verse 18 Moses says, please. Show me your glory. This is their great request of Moses. God, show me more of who you are. God, let me see you more clearly. Let me see you in your brilliance. Now, listen to God's answer, and it includes the verse that Paul quotes in Romans 9. So, listen to God's answer to Moses. Moses says, God, please show me your glory. The Lord responds, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So isn't that interesting? God says, Moses, I'm going to show you something of my glory. Okay, God, how are you going to do that? How are you going to show Moses your glory? Well, he says, I'm going to pass by you. And as I pass by you, I'm going to proclaim to you my name. So there's a connection here between God's glory and God's name. Moses, I'm going to show you my glory by passing by you and proclaiming my name. What name? the lord capital l capital o capital r capital d yahweh jehovah his name what does that name mean well we already know from exodus 3 in the burning bush god told moses his name there yahweh and he said this name means i am who i am here is my glory moses it's my name my name is i am who i am This is the glory of God. He is the I am. You and I are dependent creatures. We are who we are because of God. But God is. God is who he is without depending on anybody or anything else. God is the ultimate reality in the universe. He is the I am. That is one part of God's name. But now, in Exodus 33, God tells Moses more about his name. He says, I'm going to pass by you, Moses, and I'm going to proclaim to you my name, Yahweh, Jehovah. And then he says, here's another meaning of my name. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So God's glory is connected to his name, and his name means sovereign freedom to show mercy to whom I choose. Here is the glory of God. He is the one being in the universe who has complete and utter freedom. He's not constrained by anyone. He owes nothing to anyone. He is free to have mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy. That's his name, it's his glory, it's who he is. Now, do you see Paul's point in Romans 9? To the objection is God being obju- ob- unjust? To choose some and not others for salvation. If part of God's very essence is that He has sovereign freedom to do with His creatures as He sees fit, surely we cannot charge Him with wrong when He does just that. Surely God cannot be acting unjustly. After all, the very definition of sin is to act against God's character. Uh, The reason lying is evil is because God doesn't lie. The reason impatience is evil is because God is patient. So if God's name and his nature and his glory are all about his sovereign freedom to do as he wills among the inhabitants of the earth, he cannot be unjust in exercising that freedom. Just the opposite. If we say God is bound to his creatures if we say God is obligated to treat his creatures in some particular way, that is unjust. That is immoral because it's against the very name of God. It's against his glory. So this is Paul's argument from Exodus 33. And it's a valid and it's a true argument. Of course there can be no injustice with God in choosing some to salvation and not others, because he told us this is who he is. It is godly of him and not ungodly of him to do it. It simply amazes me how throughout this chapter, this has been new to me in preaching through Romans 9, I I, I am being freshly struck with how Paul was able to point to passages in the Old Testament that just, proved to be the answers we need to tough questions he really knew his bible well and i hope we will imitate him in knowing our bibles well all right so you saw the objection verse 14 we saw paul's evidence right for why god is not unjust in choosing some to salvation and not others and now we have to see paul's conclusion from the evidence so this is verse 16 so then you hear how that's a concluding thought <laughs> so then based on the verse i just quoted so then it it depends not on human will or exertion but on god who has mercy so does everybody see that word it the crucial question in verse 16 is what is the it that paul is talking about it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What is it? Well, the it, based on everything we've been reading in this passage, is inclusion in God's covenant promises. Inclusion in God's covenant promises. This was the issue with Ishmael and Isaac. Which one of them would be included in God's covenant promises to Abraham? Would it be Ishmael or Isaac or both? It was Isaac. Um, same for Jacob and Esau, which of Isaac's sons would be included in the covenant that he made to Abraham? Would it be Esau? Would it be Jacob? Would it be both? Would it be none? It was Jacob. The issue at stake in Romans 9 is the new covenant that God has come to us through Jesus Christ. Remember the word covenant just means promise. And here is the promise we have in Christ. Everyone who believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. He comes with the promise of forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, eternity in heaven. Who is in this covenant? Who gets to have all of these promises of salvation and being with God forever? This is the the question for you and me. How do we get to be a part of this covenant? What must we do to be saved? And at the very end of the day, every person in this world will either be a sheep or a goat. Will either be heaven bound or hell bound. In this room right now, all of us fit into one of those two categories. Heaven bound or hell bound. In the covenant, outside the covenant. Covered by the blood of Jesus, not covered by the blood of Jesus. How do we get to be a part of God's covenant? This is the it. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Yes, faith is essential. Yes, repentance is necessary. But at the bottom of it all, the ultimate cause of anyone's salvation will be this. The mercy and the grace of God. If God does not have mercy, no one will believe. No one will repent. Now, Mount Hermon, let me suggest to you that though they say otherwise, most Christians already believe this and know it to be true. Deep down, almost every believer knows that if someone is going to be saved, It must be God who does the ultimate decisive work. After all, you would be hard-pressed to find a true Christian who doesn't praise God and thank God for his own salvation. Don't we do that? Don't we thank God that he saved us? We don't come to God and say, Thank you, God, for giving me the opportunity to choose you. Is that how you pray? You say, God, thank you for providing the door so that I could be smart enough to walk through it. That's not how we pray. We, we, We pray, thank you, Lord, that I was lost and you found me. Thank you, Lord, that I was blind and now I see. Thank you, Lord, I was dead and you gave me life. I think it would be hard to be a true believer and not want to give 100% of the glory of your salvation to God. And I think that's true of most Christians. Even those who would say they struggle with election. Or think about when we pray for our lost friends, for our lost loved ones. G.I. Packer wrote this back in 1961. He said, in what terms do you pray for others who are lost? Do you limit yourself to asking that God will bring them to a point where they can save themselves independently of him? I do not think you do. I think that what you do is pray in categorical terms that God will, quite simply and decisively, save them. That he will open their eyes of their understanding, that he will soften their hard hearts, that he will renew their natures, that he will move their wills to receive the Savior. You ask God to work in them everything necessary for their salvation. You would not dream of making it a point in your prayer that you're not actually asking God to bring them to faith because you recognize that's not something he can do. No. When you pray for unconverted people, you do so on the assumption that it is in God's power to bring them to faith. And you entreat him to do that very thing. And your confidence in asking rests upon your certainty that he is able to do what you're asking. And so indeed he is. The conviction which animates your intercessions is God's own truth written on your heart by the Holy Spirit. So you see, I think most Christians know, and it's revealed when they pray, that they really do believe in a God who is sovereign in salvation. All right. Let me close with these words from Charles Spurgeon. They're included in your bulletin if you want to look at them uh, as I read. I just thought this was a good way to to end. Spurgeon says, I suppose there are some persons whose minds naturally incline towards the doctrine of free will. I can only say that mine inclines as naturally towards the doctrines of sovereign grace. Sometimes, When I see some of the worst characters in the street, I feel as if my heart must burst forth in tears of gratitude that God has never let me act as they have done. I have thought if God had left me alone and had not touched me by his grace, what a great sinner I should have been. I should have run to the utmost lengths of sin, dived into the very depths of evil, nor should I have stopped at any vice or folly if God had not restrained me. I feel that I should have been a very king of sinners if God had not let me alone. I cannot understand the reason why I am saved except upon the ground that God would have it so. I cannot, if I look ever so earnestly, discover any kind of reason in myself why I should be a partaker of divine grace If I am not at this moment without Christ, it is only because Christ Jesus would have his will with me, and that will was that I should be with him where he is and should share his glory. I can put the crown nowhere but upon the head of him whose mighty grace has saved me from going down into the pit. Looking back on my past life, I can see that the dawning of it all was of God, of God effectively. I took no torch with which to light the sun, but the sun enlightened me. I did not commence my spiritual life. No, I rather kicked and struggled against the things of the Spirit. When He drew me, for a time I did not run after Him. There was a natural hatred in my soul of everything holy and good. Wooings were lost upon me. Warnings were cast to the wind. Thunders were despised. And as for the whispers of His love, they were rejected as being less than nothing in vanity. But sure I am. I can say now, speaking on behalf of myself, He only is my salvation. It was He who turned my heart and brought me down on my knees before Him. I can in very deed say with Doddridge and Toplady, grace taught my soul to pray and made my eyes o'erflow. And coming to this moment, I can add, tis grace has kept me to this day and will not let me go. Now, Herman, can you say that this morning? Grace taught my soul to pray and made my eyes o'erflow. His grace has kept me to this day and will not let me go.